I've worked my whole life kind of pushing and just grinding and trying to get to that next level for myself. And I just feel like I would have told myself, you know, just enjoy it while you're there. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this episode of Partners in Time. And today I'm especially excited. It's uh, my dear friend and founder of Period Correct, Brian J. Calvero, who's joining us today. You may remember Brian actually from the 3705 campaign. I think we had a, a fantastic, amusing and uh, and uh, deliberation session over the 190 uh, Evo and the uh, merits and benefits of a 90s classic form follows function box design that has inspired both the tool watch that is the 3705 and also many of the classic performance cars of those era, including, of course, the absolute classic Evo. And I'm delighted to uh, have you with us today, Brian. How are you? Hey, Chris. It's such a pleasure to be here. I'm quite honored to kind of be on your podcast here. And it's just just a my blessing, very small man. podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. No, I love it. I'm very honored. I'm like uh, blown away to, ha- to just be a guest here. So now we've actually just seen, you're actually in Paul Ripke's studio down in Newport Beach. So describe it a little bit to us, because Paul is obviously, Paul's got a much bigger podcast than, than you and oh, I probably man. have. But uh, what's the setup like? Is that all pro down at, uh, at Paul's place? Oh, he's got it dialed in. And his location, I mean, come on, this is, I kind of drive down this road on PCH literally maybe three, four days a week. So he's in paradise here. But uh, studio is set up proper. He has the coffee machine here and just... It's dialed. <laughs> I know that's what goes, what happens when you've successfully worked for six or eight years in Formula One, you know, with some luxury clients like IWC on the side, and then you're sorted. Right. <laughs> I can imagine. How's things over there at the moment? How are you doing? Everything's good, you know, just um, staying busy, you know, multiple projects going on, which I'm looking forward to share with you guys. So, yeah, I mean, playing part time interior designer and kind of. <laughs> You know, we got a new store opening, so it's taken a bunch of our time in, in L.A., which I'm proud to kind of announce in the Playa Vista area. So, oh, cool. Um, pretty exciting. <laughs> Can't wait to see that. Can't wait to see that. But let's maybe give our listeners a little bit of an intro for those who, who don't know you and maybe haven't seen the 3705 campaign. Um, you are, of course, you know, a very, very a design conscious and automotive culture a legend in the uh, SoCal area. And of course, the, the founder of Period Correct. But tell us a little bit about your story, maybe. Yeah. So again, I'm, I'm Brian J. Calvero. I mean, uh, I've been kind of born, raised here in California, you know, out of LA, grew up here and just, you know, grew up around, you know, just the lifestyle, the culture that California's given from skateboarding to, you know, biking and, you know, the whole culture of street fashion and working in that industry. But yeah, I'm the creative director and kind of founder of Period Correct. And, um, you know, it was a brand that basically is based around my personal passion. So I kind of operate in that, those kind of terms. I'm looking, um, you know, I basically am building a brand that I've been just passionate about. And that's kind of what I do here, you know. 
Yeah, absolutely. And give, give us a bit of a flavour for those of us who are not sort of from California, Southern California, the, the importance of, of car culture when it comes to, you know, really a determining uh, a style, fashion, everything around a way of living and how all this comes together with the other. I mean, you beautifully combine it with your mid-century love of furniture and, and architecture and all the rest of it. But just give us a flavour on just how big an influence in, in sort of California that type of, of, of uh, cultural background actually has. Yeah, I think, you know, for me, I I literally kind of put myself through kind of what you said there with the mid-century modernism affair. Um, I've almost read every single book out there and, you know, the case study program, which is a big program here in California. Um, you know, several architects that had this program out here influenced me in every way and and kind of that indoor, outdoor living, you know, the weather here is amazing. So kind of their architecture being inside, feeling like you're outside. When you're outside, you're inside. Um, so that whole culture of just those influences is a big deal in my life. Um, you know, yeah, I've collected furniture. I've worked for the Eames family for several years at the Eames house. Mm. Um, you know, was looking forward to being an architect, but that didn't quite work out for me in that, in that, in that kind of vision there. But um, apparel was, you know, our way out. That was kind of me and my brother who I credit, uh, so much has, we always wanted to be different in our block, in our neighborhood. Um, it was about being different than the next guy and being kind of original or trying to, you know, you know, have a trend that was different and trying to be against the trend. And, you know, I think California has a lot of that where people are just trying to differentiate themselves. And I think that's what makes it great. There's a lot of subculture here, and I'm definitely a fan of that. Um, but California has a lot to offer. I mean, you could, you know, there's guys that are just into road biking. There's guys that end up cars. And when you talk about cars, I mean, you got Porsche guys. You got guys that only deal with English Ford and Lotus. And there's obviously American car culture here. So um, it's just a great melting pot of car culture and fashion and um i just feel like uh you know a lot of the people that i knew that were in new york and abroad and even in europe they moved to la and they're setting their their whole base here and it's uh it's exciting to see what's happening in here yeah definitely and i, I can totally identify with that because literally i think when it comes to the 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 creative um vibe and just the sort of the sheer energy that you find in that area at the moment i think there's no place on earth that i personally find as inspiring as as your part of the world and then that's why i, I used to come over quite frequently uh before we all got shut down by coronavirus but uh, it's it's really it's quite amazing and you're, you're right you know it's, it's funny you should mention you know you obviously wanted to be an architect i ended up in apparel i always wanted to do apparel and ended up being an architect so let's, <laughs> <laughs> let's, let's trade swap. <laughs> Let's try definitely Seriously. at least for a week or so. <laughs> but I want to drill down a little bit into this concept of, um, you know, the, the the concept of mobility and the concept of the the love of cars that is often behind what many of the popular culture is actually driven by. And I, I really, I mean, you know this much better than me, but it sort of goes back to the 50s and 60s, I guess, when California and the, the hot rod culture and all of that developed a very a particular take on this idea of, of, of American mobility. Where, where is that for you? Where's the cultural roots of what defines maybe that side of car culture in that area today? 
Yeah, I mean, I definitely think those early days paved the way. You would see um, there was road races, you know, all throughout kind of even the cities that we were, that we kind of dwell in today. Obviously, there's no longer races there, but, you know, there's at the, you know, different bases and there was races all through the streets. But you would see kind of early Porsches and early Ferraris racing Seattas and, of course, Laguna Seca, you have, you know, Riverside Raceway. There was so much race history here. Um, if you were to dive in and just see the car culture that um, that exists in those days, I mean, it was, you know, it was quite amazing to see what was there and how, you know, a lot of the cars um, that were racing in period, um, you know, people were driving them home and taking it from their home, going to the races, racing, and then driving home the same day in the same car and tons of race history down here, which is, which is definitely, you know, was a big thing. And, um, you know, seeing that culture kind of now, you know, being, I want to say, um, you know, it's, it's the background of every brand these days, right? They're using Mm -hmm. it as their prop or, um, it's in their line for the season. And it's quite, you know, when I, before I started period, correct. I mean, there wasn't really a brand based around automotive car culture, or maybe there was, but it was very, it was for like a car show or, you know, it was for the track. Yeah. yeah. Or, or accessory <laughs> lines that use car branding just simply right. to, you know, yeah. that there was, and, and they weren't always the most fashionable ones either. And I remember, you know, you're probably familiar with the, the, the UK original historic TV format of Top Gear. Um, yep. And in those days, I think they, they had a, a drag race between uh, some performance variants of some main premium German automakers that should not be ma- named. And basically, I think the guys yeah, turned this whole thing into a joke by putting on all of the merch they've received from different car companies <laughs> <laughs> over the years. So you'd get these ridiculous sort of soft shell jackets with all the branding and Nürburgring all over it. And, yep. you know, the sunglasses <laughs> and the whole, the Bluetooth headset, like the works, like all of the stuff that you could see that was definitely no sense of style of fashion in any of that and maybe that's also to do with some of these car companies obviously being based in southern germany with sort of um, you know sandal socks and, and shorts and stuff like that so it's not necessarily a style so you, you've done done the world a fantastic service by bringing this uh, right into the, uh, the the heart of of a sense of style and elegance and also quality and and, and talk a little bit about that because i think you're quite particular about the uh, material sourcing and, and craftsmanship of your clothes right Yeah. I mean, I will say that, I mean, it was, it was tough, you know, developing this brand, you know, I basically, to give you a backstory on that, you know, I had this concept in my head. And, uh, when I went to go visit Tokyo, Japan with my brother on a trip, um, doing research for his brand, um, you know, I walked into this small shop, had an F40 in there, um, sitting in the, just sitting in the lobby there. And he had a rack of kind of clothes there that was, kind of race gear from some of his other track, um, you know, merchandise and he was pouring coffee Mm. and I just had this idea when I was out there, but, you know, during that tour, we visited, you know, various shops and brands and seeing the quality of what they were building out there. It just seemed like they were miles ahead, you know, in customer service and in production. I mean, it just didn't get better when we were out there. Um, so I was highly influenced by those kind of standards 
And you got to find a medium here, you know? I mean, obviously you can make uh, the highest quality here and try to figure out the balance of making sure the price point fits the demographic you're targeting. Right. And that's difficult because, you know, you want to make a really great cut and sew piece if it's a jacket, you know, we've, and, and then you figure out, Hey, a 500 or $600 jacket doesn't work for my customer. Mm. Um, you get stunned. You're like, Hey, hold on here. Right. So you work with what you got. And when it came to choosing, um, you know, what bodies we were using for our printables and, you know, our cut and sew, we basically try to try, just try to find a really good medium, you know, everything made here in the U S uh, as much as we could. And, you know, trying to just be in charge of, you know, all the production and the manufacturing being hands-on with that. So I'd be there doing the creative direction. I have a great designer who works under me, who helps me put some of the graphic language on there from, you know, my inspirations. And then I'll go and manage the production and uh, we kind of work as a team. So we take great pride in that and we try our best to give our, our customer kind of a product that, you know, that they would be proud of. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I can relate to that in a sense, because the only real sort of uh, bit of apparel, a uh, functional jacket that I've ever attempted was during a, a project back in, well, I think 2008, 2009, we were doing something called the IWC collection. It was supposed to be an apparel and accessories range that illustrated all our different universes at IWC, you know, from the diving to the flying to the road racing and all the rest of it. And I, I got my mind set on creating an after diving jacket, which was basically sort of um, a soft shelly, but still kind of waterproof uh, jacket with huge amount of insulation. So that people would be warm after re-emerging from the ocean as it were. And then you had basically, I wanted all sorts of functionality in there. I wanted a proper hood that was, you know, properly adapting to the face. I wanted kind of a watch window where you could strap the watch underneath the sleeve and then there was like a, a oh, bungee yeah. type tie thing that you could tighten that would actually lift the watch case up above the jacket sleeve so you could see the time clearly at all times and by the time I'd done with this I was done with this pet project basically finance came back to me and said okay if we're going to make this in a prototyping studio somewhere in Europe you're going to be looking at a retail price of about five grand for this jacket is that okay <laughs> and I was like oh we're thinking more like 750 maybe and you, you very quickly uh, reached the limits of, of what is feasible in small quantities and small quantity seems to be the, the the absolute enemy of the apparel industry, right? Exactly. And, and that's what happens when you let an architect design a jacket, yeah, right? Yeah, don't do that ever again. <laughs> not a good idea. It's awesome. Not. So awesome. No, and I remember, I mean, you know, Brian, we, we actually sort of uh, met uh, in, in, not in a strange way, but in, in, I thought it was really entertaining because we basically I hadn't heard of you and you probably hadn't heard of me, I can only assume, until I was uh, speaking on another podcast, a Hodinkee podcast. And uh, somehow they got onto my uh, Hot Wheels collecting passion in that podcast. I don't know where they, I still don't know where they got that info from originally, but uh, they, they pulled it out of the bag there and then. And they asked me on the spot whether there was a, a Holy Grail a car that I was still looking for and I hadn't managed to find in my years of collecting. And because it was that sort of time, your uh, period correct 190 uh Evo just popped into my head and I said, well, that's definitely a car that is absolutely unique. Um, how did that collaboration originally come about? Yeah, you know, so previous to to um, that collaboration, I was actually meeting with the Mattel Group and Hot Wheels and 
I think they had went through different kind of upper management there. But I was working with them early before any of those kind of collaborations kind of launched, even before you saw, you know, some of the early ones like Magnus or Rod yeah. or et cetera. Yeah. So I was talking to them about, hey, there's a culture here in, in the streetwear side or kind of lifestyle in the street fashion that I think could be cool for you guys. And at the same time, obviously, um, they heard of my brand and I was like meeting there for that particularly. But um, I was telling them there's this whole other world here. I think it would be great tie in. You know, there's you guys, we, you know, they made a list of brands for them at the time. And, um, you know, they asked me and they said, well, what car would you want to do? And I gave them a list and they told me, hey, well, let's let's get that going. And what's one of your favorites? And that popped up first. And um, yeah, and I had all these other cars lined up. But unfortunately, the guys that I recommended for them to work with chose those cars before I had a chance. <laughs> so I was kind of. Um, Did you choose okay, the BMW uh, M1 as well? I did. I had ah. the M1. I had the M1 and the M3 first. And oh, then okay, they, yeah, we know where they went. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. We know where they went. Um, but, but great story going back. And I think people need to hear that of, I was listening to that podcast live, um, on Houdinki when you're on there. And when I heard you mention the brand, I was, I was literally gassed. I was like, wait, wait, I played, what did he, did he say period correct? And then I was <laughs> trailing back and, um, I mean, people need to know that, you know, we, we kind of met through that one subculture there. We're both into the Hot Wheels thing and, and uh, you flew out and um, we got to meet. I think we spent five or six hours that day talking about architecture, furniture. Definitely. Despite the jet cars. lag. <laughs> exactly. Half a week probably. Pretty, <laughs> yeah, we had a pretty big meal right there by the we Noguchi Garden. Uh, we and uh, yeah, I think, uh, you know, how small things, and I love that. And that's what I love about cars or watches it's just the way it ties and brings people together you would never guess um hey why is brian hanging out with this guy or that hmm. guy no no um, it's, it's an instant connection definitely I, yeah i love that <laughs> funny thing is but by the way the, the 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 other day you know my my family obviously especially at the weekends they see me an awful lot in, in period correct stuff and, and congratulations again on on all your spring releases this year it's really i mean a fantastic wow. job and i love the uh, still i mean the quality and the fit of your clothes is just fantastic i you know and thank i can you. only thank you warmly so recommend it to everybody who hasn't discovered period correct because it's it's literally the sizing is so reliable um everything washes beautifully and it's almost iron free okay i'll stop advertising now but you know they, they often see me in your stuff and, and the other day <laughs> my daughter actually said to me dad why does it say period correct on your shirt? And I explained it to her and almost like all at the same time, the whole rest of my family went, oh, that's what it means. I never understood yeah. it either. So even my <laughs> wife was like, oh, right now I get it. So, it just, yeah. so, so that needs to be, to non-car people, that needs to be explained a little bit. So next yeah. time I'll put the disclaimer on there. And obviously I love the fact that half of your stuff actually says engineering uh, on somewhere, which obviously totally resonates with, with RWC and what we do. And I think this approach of um, this appreciation of form together with the love of mechanics and engineering is really where I think those worlds really connect. And I, I think that's also one of those moments where when we started talking about the 3705, which, which I believe you've, you're wearing on your wrist right now at this moment, um, that's really where it all comes together. You know, that purity of form together with performance with engineering. I mean, that's what makes us tick, right? 
Exactly. I mean, uh, it's exactly it. And I think with this, with the Tribute 3705, I mean, I think you guys absolutely nailed it for me. I mean, uh, I am wearing it uh, proudly this morning and uh, I can't take it off, I'll be honest, since I received it. Um, but it's just proportioned perfectly. And looking down at it, it just, uh, it does everything for me. It just mm. feels like it's just well engineered and I just feel um, you know, it's just a really good feeling to see something. I feel like in five, 10 years, 15, 20 years time, this watch is still going to be, um, just as iconic as it was when you launched it. So, uh, you guys nailed it there. Talk about mm. quality, engineering, precision, um, the apparel piece on my part. Uh, that's very minute compared to what you guys do at IWC. And I just love that. I love your brand and genuinely. I think people affiliated with your brand, which is amazing, is, you know, just hearing the other podcasts, they're genuinely like a fan. It's not something where it's some paid kind of, um, you know, advertisement or them. They love the watch. And I mm. just like that it's organic. <laughs> yeah. And I think it's important nowadays. I do really think that uh, all our customers are, uh, you know, <laughs> smart enough to spot uh, just a, a simple commercial association when they see one and i think our business is all about passion and that's really what what we're here for and i yeah. think that's why the the organic relationships just definitely work much much better and i do wonder sometimes you know when, when i look back at, at you know discussing the the 3705 and the evo but you know in in many ways um and you had it just now when you did the big highlight on the group b cars as well a lot of these designs are very pure very brutal and very to the point and very sort of unadulted in a sense and you can never imagine and I often i see that in movies sometimes as well like it feels like somebody sat down and created something start to finish and it feels natural it doesn't feel like there's been like a you know a communication committee around the table of 20 people saying but we should also target this you know sub niche group and we should make sure it does that and you know and in the end is design is that kind of approach to design still possible even nowadays? Or do we live in a very different age where you've got this myriad of stakeholder influences that are kind of pulling in every direction? And, and how do you, do you find that nowadays in design? Or is that really a thing that was so typical of, of that era of, of classic car and watch designs into the 90s? Yeah, I think, um, you know, that's a really good point. Um, I see guys today that have to design um, to make their, like you said, their shareholders or their investors or, um, you know, they're about the dollar. So, you know, it's, it's a tougher thing when you see what the trend is out there and people are just kind of following those trends because they're reading some algorithm and they heard from upper management, Hey, you know, tie dye is trending this year and <laughs> you got to do this. It's going to be a bit street or, and a bit cool now. That's always the best right. How, how do we right. make this cool? <laughs> right. And and I will say that, you know, it was a big detriment to kind of, you know, people in my circle and friends that I know that were creatives is they were just too early. And imagine, you know, um, you know, my brother done well with his brand, but, you know, he was kind of my idol. You know, I watched mm. him develop a brand and it was around his lifestyle, but it was too early. And that's almost a detriment because he was designing whatever he wanted. He didn't have people in a room telling him, hey, you got to design this or that. He designed what he wanted and people gravitated towards it. But I think it was just, you know, five, 10 years too early. There was no Instagram at the time. Um, but 
you know, it, when it started to come about, it wasn't our focus, but uh, you could see, definitely see people are, um, you know, everybody's a designer these days. Everybody's a photographer these days. Um, and not taking away from that because I like people who are really taking an interest in these things. But, um, you know, there's some guys out there that they live this, you know, they paved the way for several years and their aesthetic is, you know, their lifestyle. It's a true lifestyle. They live it. It's not like they're making a line about road bikes and then they don't have a road bike or road bike themselves. Right. So do, do you road um, bike, by the way? It was the second time you mentioned um, that today. Oh, so. uh, yeah. You know, you I've like been Paul, Paul's converted to the road bike I, as well. I, I hear. Yeah, I will tell you this. I've been shopping for for a road bike. I've been riding a couple different bikes from from friends, but I haven't purchased my own quite yet. But, uh, you know, I've been really since our podcast and this is kind of odd. But, you know, when you guys did film the uh, uh, the trip for the Tribute 3705, yeah. I told the team, I said, Hey, why don't we wait and shoot? You guys want to shoot this in December? We should try to do this in January because I'm going on a diet in January. <laughs> and they said, well, what are you? I said, I'm starting to ride the bike. I made this whole regiment. And um, they're like, you're no, gonna Brian. Grumpy. You're going to be grumpy if you're on a diet. That doesn't work. <laughs> exactly. But since then, check this out. I mean, I lost 40, 48 pounds Gosh. since January. 48 pounds. And that's been me riding the bike uh, hour and a half every day, 22 <sighs> miles, boxing three, four days. I've been just putting myself through it, especially every time I see that video, I'm like, oh, I got to work harder now. <laughs> oh, come on. You look fantastic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but where are you going on the bike? 22 miles a day. Oh, you know what? That is pure training. I've been using the Peloton. Oh, and the Peloton. I write, right. I write. Okay. We have a local riverbed down by us. And yeah, you know, I mean, but it's, it's, you know, putting myself through training, you know, I feel the best I've ever felt in, in years. <laughs> yeah. I mean, buying a bike, I think is, is a seriously daunting undertaking because, you know, I was, before I converted sort of to road biking, I was mainly outside of skiing in summer, I was mainly a runner. And if you're a runner and you go to a specialist sort of sneaker store that actually does the, the running shoes. They will put you on a, on a treadmill, they'll analyze you for 15 minutes, and then typically they're going to give you one or two shoes and say, well, that's the one for you, and, and job done. And maybe if you're lucky, you can decide whether it's going to be lime green or bright orange, but that's the end <laughs> of it, right? So I expected the same thing when it came to road bikes, and the first time I had sort of my ideas, and okay, we're going to do this race, and I actually walked into our local uh, bike store here that was recommended by Fabian Cancellara at the time. He goes to them and I turned up there and I said, okay, so, you know, fit me a bike. And they were like, well, what do you want? I said, I have no idea. I said, well, there's 15,365 frame types. You know, they come with <laughs> nine and a <laughs> half million different combinations of like components and stuff. Seriously. And we can fit everything to you. It just really depends on what you prefer. And I was like, oh my God, here we go. <laughs> this is a whole different exercise. So then I think for my first bike, I spent probably the best part of seven months. Um, I had a design concept in my head. Um, I wanted something to to look like the original titanium Aquatimer from 2004 with the yellow accents and, and the black rubber strap yeah. and a titanium split minute. And um, then I tried to puzzle a bike together based on uh, Peter Sagan frame on S-Works that I, that I found limited edition. And I tried to build this up so it's all color matching and it, it really captures that uh, code. And I actually meant in the end that my poor uh, bike uh, shop here had to set up um, a dealership entity in France to order certain components from Mavic and so <laughs> on. So it's, it's quite the process in the end, I must say. But yeah, um, yeah. so I, I understand why you've maybe 
been shying away from that one so far. And and you know, I got friends that ride quite often, and they're they've been riding, and they're like, "Hey, you should be riding vintage." And then I said, "Well, I kind of want this new S Works thing. I I need yeah. all the help I could get." And they're like, "No, you you're more of a vintage." And I said, "You know, <laughs> this is like the choices have just been, <laughs> it's been crazy, and you're." It's not, you know, it's not a hundred dollars either, right? No, so. <laughs> not at all. <laughs> so we've we've been working with the, um, the, this uh, Swiss athlete for a while called Patrick Seabase. He's still a Red Bull athlete, and he rides fixie bikes. You know, so the bikes that yeah, are single yeah. gear. Yeah, so I have one as well. Yeah, yeah and, and no brakes. The difference is obviously he rides that up and down the Swiss mountain passes and all of these oh, crazy man. roads that are half snow covered, and he literally only oh. brakes by sort of power sliding the whole bike sideways. Oh. I'm like, <laughs> Okay. <laughs> that, that's a workout. That's a workout. It is a workout indeed. So we have to discover some riding spots uh, in and around your area at some point, because yeah. literally I think my, my dear team in, in LA, I think they've taken me up uh, somewhere in Beverly Hills once, like a cul-de-sac up a residential street and back down again. But that, that wasn't really the experience <laughs> I was hoping for. Uh, so yeah, we've nah, got to we improve got great on that. Roads. We got great roads here for sure. So tell us a bit about your latest project. So you're opening a, a store up in LA, you said. Uh, yeah, how are you, we have how are you our, pushing the envelope. What's going on? Yeah, we have our uh, our second kind of flagship door in Playa Vista uh, in Los Angeles. Um, super excited. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it's been, you know, because of what's happening with the ports, et cetera, we're still waiting on kind of all our fixtures at the moment. We should have been open weeks ago, but... Yep. Welcome um, to the club. We had that with yeah, our Zurich right? Racing Works. Yeah, we tried to get the mill work from Italy and at the height of coronavirus. You can imagine what that was like. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, the, our little zone where we're in is called Free Market. And um, we're surrounded by great boutiques and kind of restaurants. And we're just in great company. And uh, they're all, I mean, the, the gentleman who was in, in charge of the development is a good friend, is also a car guy and just a guy in fashion and lifestyle. So. Um, we were just honored to be uh, welcomed there and kind of we have a great neighbor. So connecting to our door, there's the full bar kind of speakeasy vibe. You can yeah. have a drink there and uh, we have a coffee shop and full cafe. Uh, that's our neighbor connecting to our store. So we're excited to be able to just offer more amenities and more service. But we're excited to show you guys what we're, what's on display and the, the new collections that uh, we're designing for the space. Um, we're excited. You know, I didn't think during this time, especially COVID times to open uh, a second door, but sometimes those opportunities find you. And um, I'm just thankful to God that we're able to have this opportunity. And um, Definitely. yeah, excited I mean, Your spacing, Costa Mesa is absolutely stunning. It's, it's a Thank real street fund studio that looks a little bit like sort of workshop meets uh, collector's cabinet. I'd, I'd call it probably, you know, you've got cars in there, you've got your apparel, you've got all sorts of memorabilia, but all done in a very, very sleek design conscious way. And that's, uh, it's, is, is a new space a little bit similar or are you going slightly different direction? Yeah, it's a little bit different than that. Um, it has obviously some, some of the same cues. I tied it in a bit, but you know, what was exciting was designing this, um, kind of on a budget and thinking about how I can, you know, curate the space um, with a certain kind of when there's restriction, you know, when there is no restriction, I never had that opportunity to, when someone said, Hey, open wallet, design whatever you want. And I've always kind of designed in those, those, um, those parameters. So it was really exciting to say, okay, 
look at the space, how I'm going to lay it out. But I'm always about the shell, how the floor is, the walls. I mean, it just today with it, with, uh, with no furniture in it. I mean, our developer just did a wonderful job and it looks like a gallery already. So um, it's like, I, I like it as is bare. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes less is more. I think, I think you're right. right. You know, uh, I just had uh, Hayden Cox uh, on the podcast uh, a little while ago. He, he has this uh, surfboard brand in, in Sydney, Australia, and he's been working with people like Daniel Ashton now on collaborations. He's doing really well. And he's branched out to the US and he's opened um, just around the corner from the Mattel Design Center in El Segundo. And uh, he's had the same issue. He's kind of went in there and they did the sort of the raw uh, concrete fixtures and, you know, floor and ceilings and so on. Uh, and then he kind of got stuck due to COVID. And uh, he, it's the same thing. He's, he's got a kind of very pure gallery space at the moment, <laughs> soon exactly. to be completed. But sometimes you do wonder then whether you actually like it sort of half finished. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, we wish you good luck with that one. I'm sure it's going to be amazing. And it's also going to be exciting. So you have proper sort of catering and, and cafe right in front of you, you said. Yeah. I mean, you could come over there. We're going to have host events there. And you know, with our brand collaborations, a lot of them will be yeah. launched there so that we can just have a great, it's just got a great vibe to it. I mean, that whole little center where we're in, I mean, it's got, there's so much energy in there right now. So I really like it. It's something different for us. Mm. Uh, oh, it's not a street facing store. So you got to go into our plaza to find us, but yeah. um, I think it'll be a great surprise for everyone when they come to visit. We're excited Definitely. for it. Yeah, we're just, middle we're of June, just, uh, middle yeah. of June. Oh, cool. We're just about yeah. to open our first uh, cafe now we're working on in, in South Korea, actually, in Seoul. So that, that's going to be wow. exciting. We have a bar. I mean, we have a bar in Geneva that's been going for quite a number of years that we operate together with a partner. But now we're working with Center Coffee and we're putting an IWC uh, cafe into the heart of the men's uh, luxury um, area, uh, sort of the fashion area in Avenue L Shopping Mall. It's just going to be on a different level from our new sort of big um, duplex flagship store we're opening there. And that's exciting as well, because I think always how you extend a brand identity into a hospitality concept without that becoming a shop, but still kind of being a meaningful extension to the brand. That's, that's Hospitality is a difficult one, I must say. I've always yeah. found that there's some really, really peculiar things there. You know, I think my 100%. first, my first ever design project in Switzerland was a, what they called an ice cream gallery by a Swiss ice cream <laughs> brand. And the idea was kind of to elevate kind of the scoopy ice cream game you know, from uh, sort of supermarket uh, floor to, to something a little bit more elaborate. But very quickly you find out that, you know, in, in F and B, there's some fundamentals about sort of density and presentation of food that you just can't ignore. You know, often when you see sort of fashion brand or car brand collaboration hospitality concepts, they're trying to turn this around into sort of their usual environment instead of ignoring the fact that people want to see food that looks yummy, essentially, and that is appealing <laughs> right. and inviting. And, and it's, not a, it's, not a, it's not a fashion store. It's not an art gallery and sort of, you know, two and a half bits of pastry line up on a marble plate doesn't really cut it in F&B. So they're, 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 you learn that quite quickly. You know, there's some fundamentals which you just can't ignore in that business. But I'm excited and, and definitely sure. excited to see your new space. So Brian, I've got a couple of final questions I, I want to ask you. So I'm, I'm curious because you obviously, you know, you had a quite, quite a journey so far already and, and you, you are very, very busy um, with what you're doing at the moment. But if you could go back and, you know, see so you're talking to your younger self and you could give yourself one piece of advice you would have been grateful for back in the day when he started out, what would that be? Oh, that's a good question. 
Um, I do think um, if I was to tell my younger self, um, would to be to just kind of enjoy the moment, you know, um, I've worked my whole life kind of pushing and just grinding and trying to get to that next level for myself. And, you know, just you look back at it after 20 something years and you're like, wow, where did it go? I mean, I did enjoy those times, but it's, it seems like, you know, you know, for a good example, you know, I, you know, our home, my home has kind of been my biggest project with my wife and we've yeah. been working on it for 14 years. And it's like, we're always pushing to like get to the next place or the next destination. And I just feel like I would have told myself, you know, just enjoy it while you're there. And we try to balance that now. You learn that as you get older. Um, but just enjoying the journey, trying to enjoy every single moment is, I think is key. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, if you could have stopped time at any moment there, I mean, you talked about it just now, you know, some things just haven't been an absolute blur, but what, what is the kind of moment where you wish you'd have had more time? I think while the kids were super young, yeah. I mean, at, during, during those times, you know, my brother had us on a pretty strict um, travel schedule. You know, we had an office in Barcelona in Spain. We had an office in Montreal. We had an office in New York. Um, we were in Tokyo and Hong Kong three times a year. Um, I was, was, I don't want to say I was gone. I was home a lot, obviously, but, um, I was also on travel a bit. So I feel like, you know, some of the, my two younger ones, you know, I was kind of busy during those days trying to build a, a, a base for us. So, yeah. um, yeah, I think if I could go back and I still remember like, man, I quite, it's kind of a blur sometimes when I think about them being three or four like where did that time go or five yeah. <laughs> well i think it's so, generally it's generally super difficult to remember like i find it again you know, probably the, the mums on the podcast are going to kill me now but I, I do find it hard to kind of think back and imagine my kids when they were younger compared to what they are now and sometimes when i look at photos it's like it, my wife always says to me, but surely you remember when, when she was two. And I was like, <laughs> actually, like, I see them as they are now. And it's quite difficult for me to backtrack. I can see baby, baby, but sometimes on the way, it's like not so exactly. clear anymore. And obviously, I've been exactly. extremely lucky here with our youngest because literally um, she just turned two when, when COVID hit, more or less. And obviously, that grounded me completely. Um, and I think you know, created a completely different rhythm for our family with me being there much more regularly. And I think that's also the first time that I kind of realized what I probably missed with the, with the older ones, as you described, because you, yeah. you are trying to do everything at once. You try and try and build, you know, a career for your family and all the rest of it. And it is a massive difference that, that, you know, you can see how much the kids feed off that regular presence in their lives and the, the you know not just the, you know a single adult being the main educator and somebody else sort of popping in and out and sort of saying hi and bringing the teddy bears kind of thing you know there's there's definitely something something to that and i think we've been very lucky with the youngest one that um we've we've had this time now where i could be around a bit more regularly but yeah, let's I, let's have a let's have a quick uh, look at, at your wrist history, and I want to connect this in your case, obviously, with your car history. So, tell sure, sure. first watch you remember, and first car you remember. Well, you will first remember your first car. <laughs> yeah, sure. uh, first watch is definitely um, was a swatch. You yeah. know, I was I was, you know, 
I've always considered myself kind of a collector. I've collected stamps and comic books and basketball cards and, um, you know, all the way up from shoes. And But Swatch was my first kind of love for watches, all yeah. the accessories, the guards. I mean, uh, I made yes. my folks drive Fox us watch. almost... Yeah, I, I made him drive from L.A. all the way to Vancouver to the expo in the 80s <laughs> because Swatch had this giant, I think it was like 50 foot um, display. It was a giant Swatch watch and you walked inside of it and they had a display of like their entire offering. And we drove all the way there. We camped in four different places. It was memorable. And I was, you know, I've had maybe 15 or 20 Swatches. Wow. Um, so I used to line them up and I, that's kind of, it's, uh, you know, a problem because it was the same way with me playing with robots or cars or to me, a race RCs. I, I used to line them up. <laughs> um, I can't have one. And, uh, you know, I, I admire those guys that have the one in one out rule. I, I don't. Yeah. Yeah. I know somebody <laughs> like that. I, you know, this is for me also as a collector is extremely difficult to manage. I think I, you know, I, I do like, um, an aesthetic standard and a consistency and a system in collecting for sure. But in this one in one out thing doesn't work for me either. Yeah. Yeah. Seriously. <laughs> But yeah, I had I had a I remember my first swatch actually was um an all clear uh plastic swatch. You know, we had the clear case and the clear strap yep. on that. And I remember in those exactly. days actually my mum and all her friends, they all had these pop swatches, you know, the oversized things. Yeah, on yeah, the, exactly. On the stretchy bands, you know, that that was all out eighties. And I actually I remember this had a car story attached to it because just when those became hot in Europe or in, in Germany more precisely back in those days, it was the Peugeot 205 GTI, the, the black oh, yeah. one with the red cheat yep. lines and stuff. <laughs> yes. That was the absolute car to have back in those days. Definitely for the city commute, at least powerful, that thing as well. Yeah. And the car, the car for me, you know, that started it for me and I'll be honest was, um, you know, I mean, I'll tell you one thing, you know, I've grew up, grown up just you know, being kind of infatuated with cars since I was four, you know, my mom would take me to car shows or dealerships and my poster in my bedroom was a Porsche turbo. I had the F40 poster, yeah, but I think you know, I had, had that one. Yeah. I <laughs> had one in the Countach. <laughs> we had the white Countach poster as well, uh. but I, I had a whole white, you know, I still have a photo of the room, which I could share one of these days. It's uh. A bunch of 118 scale that my that my father had bought from Ferraris to Porsches, BMWs. And, you know, when it came time to kind of buy my first, I wouldn't say classic. This was in 2005. Um, it was an E30 M3 BMW. Wow. And uh, I went to a dealership local to me. They had three on a lot. Imagine three of them. Yeah. Wow. And the guy was the guy was an enthusiast. So he had a bunch of junk cars everywhere. And he had these three, one with the S14 all original stock. He said that was 7,000. Then he had another one with the S52 engine from an E36 M3. Yeah. That was 11,000. And then he had one for 17,000. I ended up buying the first one I ever bought for 5,500. Wow. Yeah, that's and I solid investment I still, probably. <laughs> yeah. I still, I still have it today. And I ended up, I ended up buying the second one, the one with the, the S52 motor yeah. in it. I I regretly sold it, but I sold it to a good friend um, who still has it. So I'm, I'm happy about that. But that car did it for me. Those, mm. the, you know, the lines and 
watching, you know, old video of it in the DTM races. I mean, that's when I discovered also the 190 and the 190 followed after that. I bought a 2316 Cosworth and, um, you know, my wife drove it during our early days of marriage. Um, she was like, so I'm driving this and she, you know, she loved driving, you know, a manual, which was nice. Yeah. But, um, those were two of my first earlier cars. And I remember during those times I was only buying cars under 10 grand. That that was my yeah. budget. Um, so. Well, you if could you also told- buy houses for 25 back in those days. <laughs> <laughs> right. Exactly. 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 So, you know, nobody took me to car shows aged four, but what I did do is I think I, I often stayed with a, a babysitter of mine during the day because um, my mom studied law, uh, still full-time when I was little, and they lived on a really busy road that came um, down the hill towards Frankfurt. And I used to stand by the fence and just endlessly sort of recite the car brands <laughs> of everything that was going past. You know? oh, same, same and this lady way. was always like, you're weird. <laughs> and I, was, <laughs> and I, and I, I will... Yeah, I will say in my neighborhood, it's definitely not upper class. It was a middle class area um, in the city of Cerritos, California. But mm. believe it or not, you know, six houses down, um, it was a, a good friend of my father who lived there and he had a Ferrari 328. And then around the corner nice. was uh, another, another neighbor who had a 512 Testarossa and a Mondial Ferrari. <sighs> So I used to skateboard there, watch them back up, ask them if I could wash it. They'd let me sit in it. Um, so I kind of got, and you know, I was like eight, nine years old, 10 years old, and they still had them, you know, till I left my mom's house. Mm. And so that helped um, watching them And then young go Brian by. lost control over his skateboard and he skidded <laughs> off and bang into that pristine paperwork <laughs> of the Testarossa. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I, that's, a, that's another one. I had a picture of a, uh, of myself leaning on a 512TR at a show in Beverly Hills that my mom brought me to. And I was, I think I was nine. And, um, you know, I ended up buying the exact car in that photo and I drove it to my mom's house. And literally she cried when she saw it because she has the photo in in her room and she goes, and I'm holding my wallet on that photo. I could, it still have that photo today. And she said, you bought the car. And I said, yeah, I told you one day, you know, with the Lord's help, uh, I will get, I'll, I'll own this car. And uh, she cried and we shared a moment. Uh, unfortunately, I, I did let that one go um, and replaced it with a couple different uh, other Ferraris there. But, um, but yeah, I mean, As that was do. a touchy moment. Yeah, <laughs> it's kind of... <laughs> Right. See, my, my real my real bad sort of um, want moment in the sort of performance car world came quite a few years later, actually, because that was actually for me really the the proper starting point, I think, of the Mercedes journey when it came to me was when I joined IWC back in 2006, um, I, wasn't, I wasn't even here for like a, a day or two when suddenly the gentleman who managed the Middle Eastern region suddenly turned up behind my desk, introduced himself, said, hi, Chris, my name is Chris. When are you going to Abu Dhabi? And I was like, oh, I have no idea. <laughs> you know, I think I was probably broadly knew where Abu Dhabi was on the map, but that's about as far as my knowledge extended. So apparently we were doing, doing this um, first boutique in, in Abu Dhabi in, in a place called Marina Mall. And literally uh, two days later, I was on a plane off to Dubai 
again transferred to Abu Dhabi and I met our local manager there and we actually looked at this site for which was a container shoebox boutique which was going to sit in one of the corridors of Marina Mall um, as a sort of add-on to their <laughs> to their shopping offer it's ridiculous you know sort of I think it's still there actually it's a six meter uh, side you know 36 square meter sort of glass box um, that would sit in the middle of this mall and opposite that location was a place called Emirates Motor Cars and they're basically I think the official Merkin AMG distributor in, in Abu Dhabi. Wow. And back in those days, you could walk in there, so obviously this massive showroom. And the difference was, compared to anything I was used to in Europe, that all these cars were open and unlocked, and you could sort of sit in them and nobody would say anything. So they had all the, the yeah. McLaren SLRs and all the stuff that was around back in 2006. And the one car that really caught my attention over anything else, and they had the jacked up G-classes and all of that, but the one car that I really clicked with was that CLK 63 in oh, yeah. silver, in the safety car silver with the 20-spoke um, wheels and then the ones that had the bucket seat and like the, the carbon fiber um, um, door linings that just had the embossed oh, yeah. AMG and you know, the lightweight version. And that yep. Black Series CLK 63. And I just thought there and then, this for me was the, the absolute perfect balance of performance but a really understated exterior because it's not a shouty car it hasn't got a great big wing on the back or anything like that but i just right this dtm look and i think i i, I agree with you there i also as as a child i clicked very heavily with a sort of touring car look it's all a bit sort of wider a bit lower to the ground a bit aero but not over the top and then that's uh really i mean this car and i thought one day CLK Black Series. That's and it's hey, still on my that's list. That's still today, on my so. list. That's still on my list too, Chris. Still working. Still on, on my list. Yeah. And I think you probably have more examples in California. I mean, the worst was I think um, when I lived in the UK and I started going on Auto Trader for these cars, and you realise I don't know. I think they brought about forty to the of those to the UK. Uh, that was it. So you literally cannot yeah. buy them. Whereas obviously here, Germany, Switzerland, the selection is a little bit better. But anyway, we're massively digressing. <laughs> yes. Yes. No, listen, Brian, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for coming on. We could talk for hours, and I'm sure we will again very soon. Yes. I can't wait to see a new place in Playa Vista and, uh, you know, have a, a little bit of a, a bike off with you, with your new steely self. <laughs> yes, yes, let's <laughs> do it. We should definitely let's do, do that. Oh, brilliant. Thank you so much. Speak to you very soon. Thank you for being part of the podcast. Appreciate Thank you to the it. audience for listening. You find uh, Period Correct, of course, periodcorrect.com. Your Instagram is Period Correct. Am I correct, Brian? Yes. Correct. Periodcorrect.com. You got it. And Instagram's Period Correct. Of course, you'll find us at uh, IWC Watches on Instagram, IWC.com. Of course, Chris Granger Hair on Instagram for all of those bits that we've been talking about. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, everybody, for listening. I'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Peace.